All right, hello, and welcome back to um, Dale's study session on uh, the case for substance dualism. Uh, this is going to be part four, so this is going to be the final uh, lecture uh, in my series. And after this lecture, that'll conclude the show, and we'll have a, a debate with Andrew on the uh, some of the things that I've been discussing in this series for you guys uh, whenever he's free. Um, so yeah, this, this is, as I said, is going to be the last lecture in my Substance Dualism series. And if you remember in last time in part three, we looked at some of the main pro-substance dualist arguments. Um, about four arguments uh, that I think are really strong and that show that my minimal definition of substance dualism is true. We are not identical to a physical substance like the brain or central nervous system or body or something like that. And I, I basically showed uh, why I, I think this uh, proves that on the second issue of contention in the mind-body problem, yeah, we we are not uh, we are an entirely different non-physical substance. Um, but this time, I want to be fair. I, I want to jump onto the other side of the coin and look at it from the skeptics case because it, it's not um, you know physicalists have their own arguments against. Uh, the truth of substance dualism and, and trying to support their physicalist notion that we are just um, physical or material uh, substances and that's it. Um, so I've condensed all of this down to four main types of arguments that we're going to look at and then after that we're going to look at uh, four main physicalist alternatives or accounts um, as to how skeptics or physicalists try to account for well, what is the conscious subject then if he's not a soul if he's not um, you know some non-physical substance uh, okay how do you account for him then um, so we're going to look at that and uh, yeah basically we're going to refute these and, and find these lacking on the part of skeptics um, so let's get straight into it uh, what's the first contra soul or contra substance dualist argument this is one that our uh, one of our listeners, Darren, has brought up, and um, and, and uh, Andrew, I think, has also brought this up. And there's this mechanistic problem of interaction. Okay, I'm a soul. Um, how how does that interact? How does a spiritual substance or or a non-physical substance interact with a body? I mean, there are several cases or examples that people like Darren have pointed to where, oh, you damage the brain and that somehow affects uh, an attribute or a property or or a conscious state that's traditionally attributed to the soul, um, the soul proper. So, so how, the, the objection here is, how can these seemingly so, di these things that are so different possibly interact with each other? We understand how physical interaction takes place and, and physical causation and all of this um, comes about. Um, so yeah, that that's sort of the objection here. How, how can physical and chemical objects interact with a, a spiritual substance that's so different? Now, unfortunately for the skeptics, this problem is not really an issue um, for more informed substance dualists today because um, you know, this sort of presupposes an outdated Victorian notion about the ghost in the machine and Cartesian dualist notions um, around the 1800s where the soul is thought to be totally other, totally unaffected by the body or brain. But, of course, for centuries, substance dualists have never said this. This is just a ridiculous straw man on the part of skeptics. Um, we've always believed in interaction. 
I mean, you stick a pin in me, physically, I feel pain. Medieval men understood this. Um, Jesus understood this. People in the Bible understood this. They also understood the other way. You know, if I choose to raise my arm, boom, physical stuff happens and I physically raise my arm. So this notion of substance dualism interactionism is, is quite old and totally destroys the skeptics' uh, claim that they can't they claim here that you know the notion that there's this ghost in the machine but yeah let, okay let's let's deal with this fairly how the problem is how would the interaction take place on a mechanistic level so i i want to address this first of all my first rebuttal in the first place the skeptical argument simply assumes that we cannot if we cannot know how on a scientific or mechanistic level how the soul causes and or body causes effects on the soul and vice versa, then this proves that the soul can't cause anything in the brain, body or brain. Um, so the, the absence of any known mechanism is said to prove the absence of the soul. This is complete rubbish uh, and illogical on the part of skeptics. Um, you know, it, it simply betrays their bias. Um, you know, the, there are multiple examples in science of where we know 100% we know scientifically that one thing causes another without us having the foggiest notion today as to how that interaction takes place you know that and this is even the case with entities that are drastically different types of things um, for example a magnetic field can move a attack um, you know a, that's a field a totally different thing from a physical object made up of molecules and atoms yet there are standing cause and effect relations. We don't exactly know, I can't describe perfectly how that takes place. Or gravity, that's a force, uh, can act on a planet, a physical object, even when it's millions of miles away. Um, how, you know, I could just, well, how does that interaction take place? You don't know at, a, at a, any kind of in-depth level. We just know that it does. They do stand in these cause and effect relationships. Um, another example of protons, they, they exert repulsive forces on each other. Um, so yeah, basically in all of these examples, we know with virtual scientific certainty that one thing causes or interacts with another thing, even though we have no idea how that interaction takes place. And this is the case, um, even though the cause can be drastically different in nature from the effect itself. So yeah, and another uh, refutation here is Look, for, for physicalists, here's um, the how question about the, what mechanism allows the soul to interact with the brain is a complete misnomer, as I, as I mentioned. You know, such questions really only apply when there is no need for an intervening or intermediate, um, when there's a need for an intermediate mechanism between the cause and effect. So this is what we have in science, right? You can ask, well, how does my turning a key uh, cause my car to start, car's engine to start? And you can, well, there's a series of intervening or intermediate mechanisms. Turning the key turns the this thing, and that causes this to happen, and that causes this, and that causes the engine to warm up and rev up, or blah, blah, blah. Um, but this is just question begging when it comes to the, how the soul interacts with the body or the brain. Because that's a very simple, that could very well be a simple or direct and immediate causal chain. I choose to raise my arm immediately. My brain, my brain produces the, 
the the effect uh, that allows me to physically raise my my arm. Um, so there there is no need necessarily for intervening mechanisms to be described in the first place when it comes to how the soul interacts with the body and vice versa. So yeah, these are the two main objections to this interaction argument, uh, if you could call it that. Um, but actually, there are there are a couple nuanced ways that skeptics uh, can can provide a different version to this argument. So, um, basically, sometimes skeptics or physicalists will attach another type of argument here uh, based on interaction between the soul and the brain. Uh, one of our listeners, Darren, uh, has actually hinted at this in his own critique on my series. Um, so what they'll do is they'll, they'll try to say the soul interacting with the body would entail the creation of new energy being injected into or interjected into the brain or body, right? Um, well, this violates the first law of thermodynamics, the, the conservation of mass and energy. It, it, no new energy can be created or destroyed uh, in the universe. This is a scientific law that's firmly established. Uh, so, okay, uh, skeptics will go, haha, got you. Um, I, so, yeah, what do we say in regards to this skeptical uh, version of the interactionist argument? So, basically, there are three responses to this nonsensical claim of the skeptics. Number one, first of all, the first law of thermodynamics is not a metaphysical law or principle. I'm sorry, it's just a scientific law that describes the way nature normally operates uh, within a closed system. And that's what rules out the creation of new energy in, in the universe. But uh, yeah, it's, it's just a mere heuristic scientific guiding principle employed for scientific purposes. There's no metaphysical necessity uh, to this law, and therefore it's totally irrelevant. Um, next, as I said, as I hinted at, this law only applies to closed systems. It's not subject um, to outside influences, such as me as a prime mover having a soul and interjecting as a as an unmoved mover to make a choice to do something or not. Um, so yeah, it's just absolute biased question begging on the type, on the part of skeptics to assume uh, this closed system, um, that the brain is a closed system um, in order to make this argument here. It's pure non-evidenced assumption on their part. Uh, no proof at all. Um, also, um, the interjection of the of mental causality between the soul and the brain um, could even be so negligible that it's not actually detectable by modern scientific equipment. So yeah, it, basically it would be positively foolish on the part of skeptics to simply assume that the brain is a closed system where the first law of thermodynamics applies. Uh, and that also assuming that there is no actual energy inputs um, at all involved simply because of their ignorance in us not being able to detect it. It could be so negligible that it's not detectable by modern scientific equipment. One thing I could point to here, think of quantum entanglement phenomena. Modern scientific evidence proves scientifically that these skeptics are out to lunch here because we know for a fact that A can cause B without the need to create any new energy in the first place. Uh, you know, these the spin experiments um, or these slit experiments and that sort of thing have been done to prove this. It's, it's beyond all reasonable doubt. 
um, you know, these two particles are causally influencing each other, but they're too far away to involve any exchange of energy, scientifically speaking. Well, it could be very, it could very well be the same with substance uh, dualism interactionism or soul brain interactions. Um, so yeah, I, I think the skeptic is just totally out to lunch in this objection, and he's been totally refuted. Uh, he he doesn't have a leg to stand on when he makes these kinds of arguments. Um, however, there is one last uh, version or or angle on this interaction problem argument, and. That is sometimes skeptics will say, well, well, look, there's a breaking of the causal chain closure principle. So, so this refers to the skeptical notion that physicalism implies physical determinism in terms of causal chains. Um, remember, we, we discussed this in part three. But a soul interacting with the brain or body would entail a prime mover or uncaused cause into the physical realm. And this causes skeptics to have great, great distress. Um, but yeah, it's the same thing here. This is just pathetic. I'm sorry. Once again, physical causal chain closure, closure is not a metaphysical principle or law. It's merely a scientific guideline of the way thing, physical objects normally operate. Um, there's zero empirical evidence that this general principle is inviolable uh, on a metaphysical level. Um, apart from skeptics simply making stuff up and making rules up to support their own worldviews. Also think of this, this causal chain closure involves ridiculous and obviously false notions because mental states uh, under this notion would at best be merely epiphenomenal. Um, and that means they, they're like smoke to a fire. They have no, the smoke has no causal influence on the brain or body, but we all know um, from everyday experience, it's my being thirsty, my soul being th is what causes me to drink. Um, it's it's not the other way around. So, it, yeah, they, they obviously function, the epiphenomenal of the conscious states obviously functions in a cause and effect relationship. Epiphenomenalism is false. Um, so, yeah, that, that's the interactionism problem. Um, now we go to the second contrasoul argument, number two, and this is uh, the one that most skeptics, including our, our listener Darren, who's sort of my interlocutor in the comments on this, um, they like to say neuroscience, you know, the, the holy grail of, of this debate for them, proves the soul is unlikely. Um, I think uh, we showed how foolish that was in part three with the Benjamin Libet experiments, but um, yeah, let, let's be fair and look at this. This is another main argument. This is the main argument I would say that modern skeptics will allude to, and they'll point to various scientific discoveries related to oh, this brain state obtains, and this correlates to a very to some kind of uh, faculty that's traditionally attributed to the soul, or some kind of function, or, or that sort of thing, uh, or a conscious state or property, um, and. They honestly think that this proves um, that the brain states are identical to the faculties or mind, rather than just being correlated. Um, by the way, uh, I saw in the comments that there was an argument, well, scientists know the difference between correlation, even constant correlation, and causation. Um, great. Again, the claim here is that I'm happy to agree with you that brain states cause certain conscious states and vice versa. 
um, as a substance dualist interaction is. But that's different than proving they're identical. If there is a cause and effect relationship proven by science, that is the opposite and rules out the identity relationship from coming to pass. They cannot be identical. My conscious states and my consciousness cannot be identical to my brain states if they are caused by them. Otherwise, you get into the logical absurdity of self-causation. Yeah, as I said, same deal with the, the argument above. Typically, skept modern skeptics that appeal to neuroscience are totally ignorant of modern substance dualist interactionism. And this really more applies to ghost in the machine type views and that sort of thing. But essentially, there are two main fundamental refutations of this misguided notion of the skeptics. So number one, first, people don't actually postulate the existence of their mental states as a scientific explanation of their own behavior. Um, instead, we just simply know via introspection, a properly basic belief, what those states are. Um, you know, I kind of covered that in part two, I believe, about, about that. But number two, the explanatory evidence which is undeniable. I mean, Darren's right to point to these experiments, and I don't deny any of the neuroscientific findings um, that have been confirmed. There, there is a dependency. The soul depends on the brain um, to produce mental phenomena. Um, however, that doesn't mean, again, that doesn't mean they're identical, and that doesn't mean that they're dependent necessarily. Um, you know, the soul can exist without the body after death, for example. It just shows that while embodied, all of this evidence shows is that while we're embodied on Earth, there is a causal dependency from the brain on the soul and vice versa. Um, and this is empirically an empirically equivalent um, to the substance dualist interactionist versus the physicalist notion. So it could be very well that, okay, there's only a correlation and causation relations that are obtaining, and this is what we're scientifically proving through neuroscience. Um, but at the same time, there's no identity relations that are holding. Um, the skeptic simply mindlessly assumes, oh, it's the identity relation, without any evidence to support that specific alternative over a substance dualist interactionist version uh, where causation or embodied dependency is is obtaining um, but there's no identity relation so yeah n neuroscience can never even in principle prove an identity versus a correlation or causation relationship on its own merits um, you know scientific discoveries regarding the mind brain brain mind body problem um, they're helpful in answering questions about what factors in the brain and body generally hinder or cause certain mental states to obtain, but they're completely relevant on the question of the nature of those mental states themselves. Um, so yeah, let, let me give an example to illustrate my point here. Let's, it's been scientifically discovered uh, via neuroscience and neuroscientists that humans have what are called mirror neurons. Uh, when these mirror neurons are damaged, this hinders human beings' souls from feeling empathy for others and or hinders human beings, right? And uh, if substance dualism is true, that would mean it's this damage to my brain mirror neurons, my brain states are hindering my soul from feeling empathy. Um, but yeah, what? okay, 
so we have this date this basic datum mirror neurons are damaged this hinders humans from feeling or expressing empathy so what can be concluded based on this well there are at least three empirically equivalent theories that is consistent with this data strict number one strict physicalism could be true the quality that that feeling of what it's like to be in that position or or the mental state property of empathy is identical to the firings of mirror neurons or b mere property dualism might be true um you know a feeling of empathy is an irreducible conscious state non-physical conscious state in the brain whose occurrence depends on mir uh, these mirror neurons firing or c substance dualism interactionism is true empathy is an irreducible conscious quality um, in the soul whose obtaining depends while embodied at least on the firing of mirror neurons all of these explanations are empirically equivalent the skeptic has to prove that the these one the other ones are improbable to establish that physicalism is true and they simply can't do that based on the mere data that damaging mirror neurons prevents one from showing empathy sorry uh, that supports all three hypotheses and the skeptics uh, refuted here he's been defeated in his claim okay uh, next the third contrasol argument um, so this is another uh, science-based argument this isn't really a, a popular one that I think is that good um, but it's the evolution it's inconsistent substance dualism is inconsistent with evolution so they'll, they'll try to argue well humans are known to be merely the result of natural evolutionary processes uh, if this is the case then physicalism is true um, and if physicalism is true then that means I am my brain or I am a physical substance the conscious subject is a is physical in nature um, but this argument is just ridiculous on the part of skeptics and again it, it illustrates their sheer bias I mean first of all intelligent design calls into question the truth of a purely natural evolutionary theory that that's evidence that needs to be reckoned with seriously by skeptics rather than just mindlessly dismissed and I, I find oftentimes that is how skeptics uh, at least lay skeptics will operate they'll just mindlessly dismiss intelligent design because CNN told them that that's a ridiculous uh, non-scientific argument sorry if you want to prove your case you've got to grapple with the evidence for intelligent design and refute that or defeat it in order to establish your argument here secondly um, we've actually already provided strong evidence in part three part three that physicalism is false so the, there are negative evidences against this skeptical argument here that we have and again they can't just be dismissed um, they prove that physicalism is false so I could make up my own argument uh, if I wanted to well if, if humans are known to be the result of naturally evolutionary processes um, then physicalism is true however we have evidence from part three physicalism is false therefore human beings are not the result of natural evolutionary processes boom um, I could I could easily make a modus tollens um, art type argument based on that uh, as opposed to the modus ponens version that skeptics give here finally see even if this argument is somewhat true that doesn't if we are the result of purely natural evolutionary processes 
that doesn't entail that physical isn't true. Remember William Hasker, where he advances in a form of emergent substance dualism, where the soul emerges after a process of purely natural evolutionary processes to get the brain to a certain level of complexity, at which point the soul, poof, it emerges uh, on the scene as, um, as an, a new emergent substance. Uh, so yeah, th this argument is complete rubbish and is refuted. Um, finally, uh, we have our last argument, contra-soul argument or contra-substance dualist argument number four. And this relates to Occam's razor, the problem of simplicity. And those uh, skeptics will say, look, o Occam's razor says that all else being equal, the simpler solution tends to be the correct one. So um, by simple, we just mean that it employs the least amount of unproven assumptions or that um, it doesn't multiply entities beyond what is needed to explain something. Uh, so in this case, that entity being consciousness, the, the substance of consciousness, right? So yeah, basically this is uh, a principle that's typically employed scientifically um, when two hypotheses, two or more hypotheses are said to be empirically equivalent. Remember what I said before? So this is really employed as a, a tiebreaker. Remember that the argument from neuroscience, right? The mirror neurons, these are all empirically equivalent. So the skeptic could say, aha, um, but the substance dualist is positing an additional entity, a soul, a non-physical substance, where I'm just positing a brain, which we know exists. I'm just giving one where you're giving two entities to explain the same fact. Therefore, yes, they're empirically equivalent, um, but Occam's razor says we prefer the strict physicalist understanding. Um, so, so yeah, that you know, skeptics typically claim physicalism is simpler than dualism because it only employs this one type of entity, uh, matter, as opposed to substance dualists who um, who employ matter and mind or soul. So, in response to this, there are basically two main problems in the skeptics' application of Occam's razor here. Uh, in regards to the mind-body mind problem specifically. So, in the first place, Occam's razor is typically relevant only when a tiebreaker is needed, as we saw, as I mentioned. But actually, dualism is not the explanatory, explanatory equivalent of physicalism. It's better than physicalism. It, substance dualism has a far greater explanatory power and explanatory scope and these factors override Occam's razor or the ad hoc, less ad hoc criterion uh, for truth. Um, because physicalism can't explain free will, for example, something we all know we actually have and you're lying if you say that we don't, that you don't know you have free will um, based on your own properly basic beliefs grounded in your experiences every day. Uh, it doesn't explain the totalizing, unified um, view of the world um, that we have. That that state, that totalizing state, uh, doesn't explain the enduring self over time. It doesn't explain the modal arguments uh, proving that substance dualism is absolutely true conclusively. Uh, so yeah, the the skeptics are really totally up to lunch here in employing the simplicity criterion um, because. I'm sorry, we don't have explanatorily equivalent options. Substance dualism completely destroys physicalism when all the evidence is factored in together. Secondly, 
Remember the, um, I mentioned in part two that we have private access or, or private knowledge um, of my own internal conscious states. So the soul will directly and immediately interact with the body to cause various effects and vice versa. In a way, I could actually argue that this notion, this notion of a direct causation as opposed is far more simple, right? I'm just, I'm postulating less um, entities involved in the causation of my raising my arm uh, or seeing red. The skeptics, as physicalists, are postulating multiple entities, physical intermediate um, mechanisms and, and intervening mechanisms that aren't necessary. I can explain that far simply by just saying, my soul chose to raise my hand, boom, that produced the effects in my brain and body immediately and directly, and my hand goes up. Um, so yeah, one could argue that actually substance dualism is far more simple even assuming they're empirically equivalent, it's it's a simpler explanation compared to physicalism. So yeah, in, in light of the following critiques, uh, I honestly think that the burden of proof is on the skeptic to prove that physicalism is, is better than substance dualism, which they fail at. And also they have to prove that substance dualism um, is more complex or complicated than simple phys than physicalism. And yeah, the, the failure uh, to do so on both accounts means that appealing to Occam's razor is a total um, false argument. It's, it's a failed argument on the part of skeptics. Um, so yeah, those, those are the four main arguments. Um, I've, I've included things in it. Um, but yeah, these are the four main reasons as to why skeptics will try to claim they can prove physicalism is true, but um, yeah, it's just unconvincing. Sorry, skeptics, but um, yeah, let, let's move into the second part of this show. Um, so now we're going to look at the four main physicalist theories of the conscious substance or the conscious, the substance of consciousness or, you know, the what is the nature of the conscious subject himself? It's on the second issue of contention again um, in the mind-brain, mind-body problem. So yeah, what basically, as I said, there are four main physicalist theories. Um, so this includes what's called animalism, material constitutionalism, which uh, was recommended again by one of our listeners. Uh, so I, I got you back. I'm covering that. Um, there's the brain view. Uh, so that's and also there's worm theory. So these are the four main physicalist theories for the, the substance of consciousness. And really, I think I'm going to refute all four of these as being utterly ridiculous. And they just show the sheer desperation of the skeptic when it comes to the problem of consciousness. This is really a, an issue for them that, that proves their, their worldview is, is not up to par with Christians or theists or... or uh, subjective idealists who believe in some kind of non-physical substance or non-material substance. Um, so yeah, let's get straight into that. Um, so what's the first option? So this is what's called animalism. And animalism is really a, a minority physicalist view. Um, even even um, other physicalists kind of um, berate this view. It, it's not um, a popular view among physicalists today. Um, but yeah, what does it say? So it essentially says, look, we as humans, we as the conscious subject, uh, are essentially a living organism that has an enduring life 
Um, so they would agree with my enduring life argument, but they, they would say enduring self argument, unlike David Jay or, or unlike most physicalists that, that say we, do, we don't endure. Um, but uh, more accurately for them, here's the kicker. Here's why they're weirdos. Um, they will say that, look, lives, it's the life that is essential to who you are. You are your life. You're not an organism that has life. That's what most scientists believe. That's what substance dualists believe. Um, that's what common sense would say. No, they say, no, no, no. Lives are fundamental. Lives are primary. They have organisms. And by life, they define that as an event. Uh, it's a, it's a self-organizing, self-sustaining, totalizing event that encapsulates um, and enables an organism to sustain its internal structure despite material or physical alteration, right? You lose the member meriological essentialism in, in part two or part three. Um, you know, a tree, a tree loses its leaf. Is it the same tree or not? And mainstream scientists and physicalists and substance dualists will say, well, if it's a physical object, no. It's a totally different tree because it's um, it's lost. It it stands. It has new physical parts and or physical bonding relations. Therefore, it's not identical to the tree it was before. Animalists say no. We deny mereological essentialism. That's the same tree. Okay. Well, what binds it then? Oh, it has. It's a life. Um, it, it's the totalizing event. Um, so it's kind of like a mystical view. Instead of soul, they insert life uh, as the enduring thing. Um, so yeah, I think as you guys can kind of see, it's very weird. It's semi-mystical type view of this this life uh, type thing. So yeah, just just remember that the life is seen as a special kind of event described here by the sum total of the the organism's metabolic activities over the entire time that sustains the internal structure of the of the organism that has that um, that of the organism that comes attached or derives from that life and just before i go into a critique of this so i'm providing some sources on this but some of the main proponents here are people like eric olson peter van inwagen and trenton merricks these are some of the people you should look up that hold to this uh animalism weird animalism view um, so yeah, what, what are some of the main objections? Let's get into this. Um, there are really several here. Um, I'm going to reduce it down to four for time's sake. Um, so number one, as I said, it's weird. These guys think lives, a, an event, are ontologically basic or prior to the organism. The organism is only deri a derived entity from the living event itself. Um, but this is this is backwards. I'm sorry, modern scientists, we all agree. Modern biology backs me up in refuting this nonsense. No, lives do not have organisms. I'm sorry, organisms have lives. Um, you know, lives are not self-sustaining. Organisms are self-sustaining. Um, and life is merely a, a set of activities or metabolic activities that occur within an organism. So the, in actuality, the organism is basic. Modern biology and biologists agree with me. Organisms have lives. Um, 
you know, this has been the majority view since the days of Aristotle, for, for crying out loud. It's just obvious. Um, okay, number two. This animalism view suffers from the too many thinkers problem. So, basically, animalism tracks the biological features instead of psychological traits. Um, so, if we take the example of, the, of conjoined twins, um, imagine someone... Um, living in one body, but they have two heads. They have two separate streams of consciousness. You know, I, I can both be hungry and tired at the same time with one head, um, but with the conjoined twins, this is actually not correct because one stream of consciousness is hungry and the other is tired in this hypothetical example. But the animalists can't recognize this basic fact because they're limited under animalism to studying only the biological traits rather than the psychological streams of consciousness. So they get the they necessarily get the answer wrong. We all know that there are two separate streams of consciousness. There are two persons. One is hungry, one is uh, tired. But animalists can't say that. They have to say nope. There's um, there's only one guy and he's hungry and tired. Um, and that's just that's just wrong. So that's the problem of having too many thinking animals. Um, so a third one is related to so mereological essentialism versus the mereological aggregates. So remember that leaf example uh, lost on by a living tree. Um, now modern scientists, because of modern atomic theory, we we understand physically what physical objects are. They're empty spaces, large empty spaces, uh, and molecules, electrons, atoms, blah, 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 uh, in a certain sort of bonding relationship. Uh, if that changes, they become a completely brand new. You take out one atom and put in a new one, you get an entirely new uh, organism, or a, yeah, an entirely new physical object. Just like the raft, you take out one raft, you put in, you put out, you take out one wooden board and put in another, it's an entirely new raft. So yeah, mo modern atomic theory proves that this is, the denial of mereological essentialism is false. And animalists have to deny mereological essentialism. Here's another way to, to look at it. Picture the brain as sort of like being a cloud under, under the notion of modern anatomy. So. Look, we can exchange a water molecule uh, and then we'll have a new cloud. Just like I can exchange a molecule in my brain and we would be a totally new person. Um, animalists appeal to common sense and they'll say, well, no, but it's, it's obviously one cloud. We're referring to the same one cloud up in the sky. And likewise, I'm referring to the one brain. Just because you review, you remove one little molecule doesn't mean you have a, an entirely brand new thing. But again, with the cloud example first in the first place, we, we know that they are just mereological aggregates. It's an illusion that from a distance, it looks like it's a cloud, but actually it's not. It's a mereological aggregate of mo water molecules in a certain sort of bonding relation, and that can change. And it's the exact same at a molecular level for the brain. Uh, our brains are just clouds. Uh, as the same the same thing as a cloud. There isn't really a, it's a mereological aggregate of various molecules in certain bonding relations. So yeah, num number four, the last thing is 
Animals have a, a difficult time distinguishing between a life and non-living things. Remember, lives are, are predominant for them. So, look, hurricanes have lives. Uh, you know, if you define, the way animals define lives is, a, is an event, a series of, of activities that describes and defines that, you know, the, the, the derived organism. Um, so yeah, hurricanes have lives in the same sense a dog does under this animalist definition of what a life is. Um, it's a self-maintaining, self-sustaining, and well-individuated continuant of the storm's activities. Just like animals and humans have a self-sustaining, self-maintaining, well-individuated continuant of metabolic activities during their lives. So yeah, you know, basically the difference between being alive physically and not being alive seems really to only be one of degree of activity. It, it's not, there's no substantive difference in kind. And yeah, a animalists just have to arbitrarily or very ad hocly define what counts as life versus non-life based on knowledge that we know what is alive or not via a properly basic belief. And What's really going on here is we know what counts as life is there. They have a soul. That's what makes them alive. And animals are borrowing and piggybacking upon that knowledge to make this definition. But if you don't assume, if we don't assume the knowledge from the soul, under their definitions, they have no way of physically differentiating between life and non-living entities. Um, so, so yeah, these are the four main problems against animalism. I think you can see it's total nonsense. Most physicalists believe it's total nonsense, but yeah, I'll provide some sources because this is not a, a common view, so you can check some of those out with Eric Olson um, or Peter Van Aemwagen and, and see what you guys think of it. Um, but yeah, let, let's come to the second physicalist view, and this is what's called material constitutionalism. So this was recommended by one of the listeners. Um, and this, this view is a little bit more respectable. It, it is growing in popularity over the past 15 to 20 years. Um, you know, it, it, it has adherents um, that include Christians, believe it or not. Um, some Christians are material constitutionalists. Um, so yeah, just to give you an idea, some, some of the main ad adherents are people like Kevin Cochran, uh, Co uh, and probably the, the most famous, the one I'll provide sources for, is, is Lynn Rudder Baker. So, yeah, what, what is, okay, what, what is this physicalist view? What, what have these skeptics cooked up now to, to try and deny the obvious truth that there, we have a soul um, or that consciousness is non-physical? Um, basically, um, in order to understand this view, you need to under, we need to clarify the difference between um, a composition relation uh, versus a constitution relationship. So the former is one uh, that most people, most lay people already know about. Look, uh, um, it, it comprises many to one relationships. So for example, there are many atoms and molecules which compose my brain or a single table or a chair. Um, that's the composition relationship. Now a constitution relationship is more of a one to one relation. Uh, between two different objects that are existing at the same place at the same time. Now, right away, you should be saying, what the heck is that weirdness? 
Um, so, so here's an example that they'll use to illustrate the point. So imagine a chunk of marble. And that chunk of marble constitutes a statue of David. So there is both an object that is the statue of David and a chunk of marble coexisting in the same location at the same time. So this is what material constitutionists will say is a constituting relationship. And they say the same is true about human persons, about the conscious subject. Look, I am my brain, aka the chunk of marble, and my brain constitutes my consciousness, aka the statue of David. Um, so, so basically, they, a person is defined as an entity that has the potentiality for a first-person perspective. So my brain constitutes a first-person perspective, is what they're saying, is what the view is. Um, now, it's crucial here, understand, the constitution relationship is not the same as the identity relationship. There are two separate objects. There isn't one object that is described differently and they're identical to each other as common sense would dictate and as what all most people think, right? So yeah, the the best way to illustrate it is that the one I gave, the statue of David in Florence is not identical to a lump of marble, uh, to the lump of marble from which it's made uh, because both objects, they'll, they'll try to say, well, both objects have different modal properties. And if something, right, the law, logical law of non-contradiction is true, if, if something is true of entity X and not true of entity Y, aka they have different properties, they cannot be identical. Um, so they'll say, well, I could slice off David's nose or his head and, and change him up. He would no longer be a statue of David. He would have a different property. So yeah, the, the constitution relation, they're really unity relationships. Um, that stand somewhere between identity, full-on identity relationships and having two independently existent objects, having nothing to do with each other. So, so yeah, the, the constituting object or thing, the chunk of marble, is then said to be submerged or encompassed by the identity of what it constitutes, i.e. the Statue of David. Uh, in our terminologies, the constituting entity, the brain, is submerged or encompassed um, by the identity of what it constitutes, namely consciousness. Um, so this is this is the weirdness that is material constitutionalism. Uh, this this is their view. So so yeah, um, basically they like animalists. They deny mereological essentialism, and they do believe that there is an enduring self, unlike most physicalists today. Um, they. However, where they differ with animals, instead of it being a mystical notion of life, a life event that is enduring and continues, um, instead, the, the human or in the human organism, instead, what material constitutionalists say endures is the constituted person, the constituted first person perspective is what endures for the life of the organism until he dies or that sort of thing. So. Um, yeah, that's the difference there. Uh, so let, let's get into refuting this nonsense. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, yeah, so, so number one, look, this view fails to account for um, the positive evidences I gave in part three. 
um, as do all physicalist notions. Um, but secondly, look, th this is completely an ad hoc and strained explanation. To suppose that there are two different objects that can be co-located um, and submerged into this constitution relationship um, is just nonsense. I mean, Baker will claim, look, the, the law of logical law of non-contradiction isn't being violated because there are different kinds of objects. The marble is the constituting object, aka the brain, and the statue, or the first-person perspective, the aka the person, is the constituted object. But this is just a distinction without a difference. This is just a made-up nonsense, and it's pure question-begging. We have plenty of different kinds of objects, and none of them stand in this what's called a constitutive relationship. Uh, lines and tigers, proton and electrons, the, none of them can even possibly exist in this co-located manner. It violates the logical law of non-contradiction. And it's the same deal here with the brain versus the the uh, first person perspective. So yeah, it's inconceivable that two objects in exactly the same place and time and that are completely physically indistinguishable from each other, same mass, size, shape, etc., blah, 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 but yet they're all, they also are claimed to have different properties. No, th this is logically impossible and absurd. There is no such thing as this constitution relation. It's complete nonsense. There is identity relations. There are cause and effect relationships. There are correlation relations, there are composition relations. The constitution relation is complete made-up nonsense, and modern science scientists all agree with me about this. I'm sorry, there's only one object there. There's a lump of marble in the shape of King David. There aren't two different objects there. Um, also, defining a person as the property of being in the first-person perspective is illogical and makes no sense. Look, substances have properties. They, that's what su the word substance means. They stand under and bear up their properties. Um, it makes no sense to say that, oh, well, actually, a substance is a property, uh, the property of being in the first-person perspective. That's just nonsense. So, yeah, basically, the first-person view, being in the first-person point of view of Dale is actually just the way of describing an ontologically prior substantial person. I exist as a substance and bear the property of being in the first-person perspective of Dale. Um, finally, uh, another uh, skeptic, another um, expert, Dean Zimmerman, and see the sources, I provided an article by him, argues rather conclusively that this view is just totally illogical because physicalism demands that an object can't lose all of its physical parts and still be the same thing. Um, he goes on, so this is him defending mirological essentialism. Um, look, there are inherent limits on how later stages of an object can be thought to evolve from earlier stages. Um, but Lynn Rudder Baker's notion just ignores all of those limitations that we know from our experience and from science and all of that altogether. So, yeah, she just fails here. The, the only way you can get around this is by positing a soul that can sustain the property of personhood through the loss of all the parts, the physical parts. Um, yeah, uh, constitutionalism just doesn't work, uh, as does animalism. I, I think that's 
there'll be plenty of sources. I mean, as I said, there are dozens of arguments against this view and how foolish it is. Um, so look those up. Uh, but I think I've kind of refuted it here. So let's go into the third physicalist view. Now this by far is the most popular view. This is the brain view. This is the view that Darren believes in. This is the view that David Johnson believes in. Although David Johnson has a interesting qualifier where he's like, well, specifically, specific part of the brain, it's your, you are your badly cloned memory engrams. Um, but yeah, th this position is fairly straightforward. It's by far the vast majority view among scientists and neuroscientists and that sort of thing. They just say, look, the conscious subject is identical to their physical brain, or more accurately, to certain specific parts of the brain and the nervous system. Um, so this, this nuance or qualification basically recognizes that, look, not all the parts of the brain have a direct connection to consciousness. I can remove certain tissues or, or blood in the brain it has nothing to do with consciousness in a direct way. Um, but at the same time, there are certain non-brain parts that do have a direct connection to consciousness, such as the central nervous system or my optic nerves or pain receptors or something like that. So yeah, this, this position must assume, in order to work, this position has to assume two non-proven assumptions. And you'll see skeptics mindlessly just assuming this is the case. Um, otherwise, the brain view just totally fails. So the first is what's called the TSM principle. So this is the thinking subject maximalism principle, which states that a conscious subject or thinker's parts are all and only those involved directly in consciousness. Okay, great. Well, that's what I said. That's what I said above. But number two, there's also the PIP principle, PIP. So that stands for the psychological individuation principle. And this states that all conscious states belong to the same conscious subject only if they causally interact with each other. Um, so the, the reason they go for this principle is they have to assume this is because this is what allows for the unification of uh, varying conscious selves or states in order to be considered a person, uh, a single entity, a single conscious subject. Um, so these are just their unproven assumptions. Let's let's look at this and kind of refute this nonsense that these skeptics uh, have come up with, that we are identical to our brains and or certain parts of our brain and central nervous system, etc. So the first objection one could raise right away against, um, against this is really to challenge these non-evidenced assumptions on the part of physicalist skeptics. Um, the TSM principle, for example, requires something to be directly involved with consciousness. But what does that mean? That, that's a very vague definition. And um, more likely, to, in, in fairness, to be fair, what, what neuroscientists have in mind here is probably, look, the physical parts in question can be proven to directly cause a given conscious state or property. Um, remember, difference between cause, causation relations and identity relations. So um, what, what neuroscientists do is they'll depict brain states as subvenient causes for emergent supervenient mental effects or conscious states and properties. Um, and emer But think of what that means though. Emergent supervenience 
presupposes a causal relationship. It's like how the combination of, of molecules of H2O, the subvenient molecules, cause the emergent supervenient property of wetness to obtain. This is an example I think Darren gave in one of his write-ups. In, in, I put his sources in part two there. But remember, cause, establishing cause and effect relationships logically prove that they're not identical. They rule out the identity relationships. You can't have one without the other. You can't have one uh, and the other. It's, it's an either or. Either they stand in cause and effect relationships or they stand in identity relationships. And since neuroscientists have proven that they stand, um, that emergent conscious properties are supervenient on various subvenient uh, brain states and that sort of thing, then we know that brain states cause con conscious states. They're not identical to, conscious, to consciousness. So yeah, boom. Uh, this violates, according to the logical law of identity, um, if something's true of one and not the other, they're not identical. Um, it's like when fire causes smoke. The smoke, the effect, is not identical to the fire, it, its cause. They have different properties, and such as the smoke coming into existence at time two versus the prior fire, the cause existing at time one. The fire cannot be identical to the smoke because the fire causes the smoke to come into being. Um, boom, you're destroyed, skeptics. Um, but what about PIP? What about the PIP principle? Um, this unifying principle? Well, in the first place, it's not true. Um, one can have a thought that has no causal relationships whatsoever to my other thoughts or uh, thinking or that sort of thing. Um, the, the, if I think of a logical premise, a logical deductive argument or syllogism, the prior premises, my thinking about the prior premises do not cause my thought of the conclusion. Um, rather, it's a free conclusion one draws based on a direct insight of understanding the premises and their logical relations. Um, so you can't even prove this PIP assumption this psychological unifying or individuation principle is absolutely false, provably so. Um, okay, uh, here's another objection. The brain view uh, can't account for certain indexical facts. So that's like using the word I, first person facts. I am identical to my brain, uh, for example. There are no exhaustive third person descriptions of all brains in the entire universe that can answer the question I am identical to my brain, to, to a brain, sorry, but which brain am I identical to? See, the, the only way you can possibly answer that is to presuppose a first-person perspective, a conscious substance, a subject, a non-physical soul, or else there's no answer to this question. Skeptics using scientific third-party descriptions can never answer this question. It's impossible to answer. Oh, not so fast, though, Dale, um, because skeptics have tried to be smart in coming up with an answer, and they'll try to say this. Well, let, well let's say this. Um, through a sleight of hand, I can say, well, my, when I say I and my brain, or my brain, I'm saying, look, I'm identical to my brain. Boom, this solves the problem, right? Wrong, skeptics. Uh, sorry, because 
When you use the word my brain, my is either a possessive adjective or a possessive noun. And in either case, this my is derivative of the first person indexical I. You know, you're again, you're just saying I have this particular brain. That's all you're saying. Um, and again, this cannot be captured scientifically. This is a proposition or fact that is true and cannot be explained scientifically or answered using third-party scientific facts. Okay, number three. Again, there's the too many thinkers problem. Uh, so remembering that cloud example and the myriological essentialism I mentioned before. Um, but there's a specific issue in the brain view here because brain view proponents will not deny myriological essentialism. Um, they'll simply deny that there's an enduring self or something like that. But basically, okay, if that's the case, then this position holds that there there are various subsystems in the brain um, and these are isolated there's no connection between them in terms of the conscious states they produce at a given time um, there's no interaction so it's kind of like do you remember the the example I gave of the five cooks with parts of the recipe they're all conscious of it at the same time synchronized um, but they don't have phones to connect they're they're isolated none of them could know the entire recipe and have a unified knowledge of the recipe or unified field, a totalizing state of consciousness. But yet we do. Therefore, we cannot be our brains because we have part of our totalizing state of consciousness or this unified field involves subsystems in the brain that are isolated uh, and cannot interact with each other at any given time, at, at, at this given time. Therefore, we cannot be our brain. We cannot be identical. This totalizing state that I experience is not explainable via the physical components of the brain or relations of the brain. Finally, the last argument here is brains are not di are divisible. They're separable objects as, as physical objects always are. Um, so yeah, it makes sense to speak of brains in terms of percentages. Um, and it's the exact same deal in terms of brain functioning as well. If you want to say, well, we're brain functioning, not, not the brain itself. But persons, unfortunately, persons are all or nothing. We know this to be the truth. I am a full person. It doesn't make any sense to describe me as being 53% Dale today. Um, but that doesn't apply to physical objects like the brain. I can remove half the brain. Um, this this results in my removing certain amount a certain amount of brain functioning as well. But yet I, as a complete 100% Dale Glover person, still exists there. But this shouldn't be the case with the brain view. So, boom, you're refuted skeptics. Um, all right. Uh, lastly, here's the final view. Okay, we're, we're over an hour already, so let me do this quickly. There is the four-dimensional worm theory view. And to understand this, we need to understand the different notions of, of time. So there is the ontological status of time. There are theories about persistence through time um, or, or in time or whatever. And then there's an A theory versus B theory of time. So there are two, on the ontological status of time, there are two notions. There's presentism. Basically, there is a past, present, and future. We, we are in the present. There is an actual present that exists. 
And then there's four-dimensionalism, which this view holds to. So this says presentism is false. The most popular uh, version of four-dimensionalism is eternalism. And that's what four-dimensional worm theory advocates for. Um, but it says everything, the past, present, and future all exists tenselessly all at once. Um, as, as like, so if you picture it this way, as like a, with the A theory or B theory as well, there's temporal becoming. A theory believes that there is temporal becoming. The past doesn't exist right now. The future doesn't exist, but it will come into existence. Um, there's only the present. So if you picture a ruler as the, as the timeline, past, present, and future, the present is the five centimeter mark. The only thing that exists under an A theory of time is the five centimeter dash. Uh, the rest of the ruler doesn't exist, ontologically speaking. Under a B theory of time, or this four-dimensional understanding, no, the entire ruler exists. Past, present, and future all exist at the same time, but they stand in illusory relations of earlier than and later than. But the four centimeter mark exists at the same time as the five centimeter, and same deal with the 20 centimeter mark. The entire ruler exists. Now there is a, another part here about um, uh, theories about persistence. So the enduring, remember the enduring self. So substance dualists typically, Christians will typically go for the endurance. I shouldn't say that. I, I go for the endurance view. So I think that things last over time by being wholly present at each moment that they exist in. Um, so things don't have temporal parts. They exist fully and wholly in the present. At the five centimeter mark, I, Dale, the person Dale, the sub conscious substance Dale is here, is fully here. And in the when the six centimeter, the future comes about, I will be fully at present at, as a person at that moment, as a conscious subject. Perdurance, on the other hand, which is what the worm theory people believe in, uh, rather ridiculously, uh, they say substances or things last over time by having parts. Um, so they, they see us persons or the conscious subject as a four-dimensional worm extended through time, extended throughout that, rule, that entire ruler. So people have temporal phases. You are not a full person at, at the five centimeter mark. You're not a full person at the 20 centimeter mark. You are not a full person at the four centimeter mark. You are a full person over the course of the entire, the person is the entire ruler throughout time. But at the five centimeter mark, you are only part of a per the person Dale. Um, I am a temporal phase, uh, so to speak. So uh, another way of, of picturing this, that Brian Green, a, a skeptical atheist, um, astrophysicist and that sort of thing, uh, who wrote an excellent book, he uses, well, let's think of a loaf of bread. So I am the entire, I as a person, the conscious subject is the loaf of bread. But there are various slices that are temporal phases of that person. They are parts of the whole person extended through time. So yeah, ba basically this view, this view does have a couple advantages, but the main one is it solves the problem of the material constitutionalists. Um, because it says that the there is only one object that exists, but it exists at different modes at different temporal phases. So there's the lump of marble, 
in the shape of David for some time phase, but in others it's a headless, it's in its headless temporal phase, um, or it's a lump of marble without any shape temporal phase before it was carved into the statue of David. Um, so they're more like substance dualists in this regard. They deny this nonsensical notion of a constitution relation or co-location. Um, but as we'll see, they still suffer from the multiple thinkers problem, that cloud. Um, because with them, there could be multiple worms that come, that come about. Um, just like there are multiple clouds, if you replace a molecule um, and that sort of thing. Okay, well, if I replace a temporal event in my series of life, then you could have multiple temporal worms, four-dimensional person worms that are overlapping. And this is just ridiculous to envision. I, um, yeah. Okay, so let's, let's refute this worm theory quickly. Um, so in the first place, there are strong reasons and arguments and evidence to prove that the B theory of time is false. Um, that four-dimensionalism is false. That perdurance is nonsensically and laughably false. Um, it, it denies our properly basic beliefs of what we all know to be true. It denies the use of temporal indexicals, like using I am here now, um, or back then I did this. You know, it, it denies the obvious fact. I'm a complete person right now, this second. I am a whole substance. I'm not part of a temporal worm substance. I'm not a temporal phase of a person. I'm not a slice of bread. Uh, that's just ridiculous. But yeah, skept skeptics will just once again come back on this with their old trick. Uh, it's an illusion. It's not real. You think it's real, but it's not. And this just this just annoys me. This is just nonsense on the part of skeptics. They, it, it really feels. I don't I don't want to come across as though I'm just bashing skeptics, but you I think I want to say this. You need to understand that it it really looks like you you deny all of that we have free will when I know that we do have it. You deny our common sense notions that we all know I exist in the present here and now as opposed to as a temporal phase. You, you know, you, you and everything goes back to, oh, it's, a, it's an illusion. You deny that I'm an enduring self. I'm the same person I was yesterday as I was eight years ago and that sort of thing. Um, it just seems like you can't handle the truth and want to deny it. And at any cost, even denying what you yourself know to be true uh, in the hopes that, well, someday science will show that I'm right. Um, that's how it comes across. I don't want to necessarily say, well, that is what you're doing, but that is how it looks to me from my end. So yeah, let's move on. So another one is Richard Swinburne's, the fission operation, the split brain experiment, thought experiment. So let's say half my brain is put into an identical clone body uh, and the other half is put into another clone duplicate. Worm theory skeptics cannot answer the problem of, okay, where am I? Um, which, which temporal worm is now me? Uh, is it the badly clone? Is the clone number one with half my with the left half of my brain, or is it clone number two with the right half of my brain? And because each four-dimensional worm here, each clone person worm, is psychologically indistinguishable from each other, 
this is a real dilemma for these people um, because it, it constitutes what's called the closest continuer problem in philosophy. So basically identity relations are established based only on the two entities involved being compared and being claimed to be identical. But with worm theory and with this experiment, actually both clones, half my brain, are now just as close as a, as a, um, a continuer of the person stages or temporal phases of me as a four-dimensional worm as each other. Quote unquote, I at any given time is nothing more than a time phase rather than a full person. Worm theorists can never, in principle, it's impo logically impossible for them to ever know which worm clone they are identical to um, after this hypothetical fission operation. That's a real problem for you skeptics. Um, thank God I, I've got a soul and uh, I'm a substance dualist so I don't get into these logical conundrums that you guys do, that physicalists do, that obtain, that hold to these worm theory, this worm theory. Finally, um, worm theorists also claim that one's past history is essential or identical to who they are as persons. Um, so think of how ridiculous this is. This means that all the past events that happened to me, I just happened to choose to wear a red shirt today as opposed to a blue shirt. That happened necessarily. That is essential to who I am, according to the worm theorists. But this is logically absurd. Um, I could easily have worn a blue shirt instead of a red shirt, for example. So yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, my history is an accidental feature that I, as a person, have in the here and now. It is not an essential feature or thing that um, that I, as a conscious subject, am, right? It's not part of my personhood that I chose to wear a red shirt as opposed to a blue shirt today. This is just complete rubbish, and yeah, it, it's not true at all. Um, Okay, so that'll be it. Thank goodness. I know that's a bit long. Uh, that'll be it for my series, my lecture series. I've been sort of provocative uh, with the skeptics um, and the physicalists in this series. Um, I hope it doesn't come across offensively, but I think it. I need to put a strong or firm stance on how powerful the evidences are against physicalism when it comes to consciousness. Um, Otherwise, there tends to be a, an assumption of, you know, a dismissal of, of everything that I'm saying. So I, I get, I do apologize if it's come, off, come across as being offensive when I say things are obvious or I say the skeptics are, are totally absurd or, in, or rubbish or that sort of thing. Um, just understand, I've done so with a purpose because I, I really need to shake, feel that I need to shake you up and take these things seriously and give it a rethink. Don't just go with the flow and dismiss what I'm saying. Really think about these things because it is really clear that physicalism in terms of the consciousness issue is false. Um, that is what I honestly believe um, and, and that's why I've tried to be a bit more firm or, or provocative in the way I present the, the show. Um, but yeah, hope, hopefully you guys, you know, look past that, for, forget about the rhetoric and, and look at the substance of what I'm saying. What, what do you make of the actual substantive arguments um, that I make? Uh, think about those and, and 
check out some of the sources that I make and, and do a little bit of research to see if um, what I'm saying makes sense to you or not. Uh, that's that's what I hope to to spur you guys on to do here as skeptics and and hopefully I'll for people that are already agree with me hopefully I'll provide you you with some reasons to strengthen your confidence that yeah you you are not just your brain you are not a a lump of physical matter you as a conscious subject are a non-physical substance um, and you have non-physical conscious properties and states. Uh, if I've given you pause for thought or, or done that, then I will be happy in achieving my purpose. So yeah, uh, look out for part five uh, once Andrew's uh, prepared and we'll have a good discussion or debate on these things. So all right, everyone have a great day. Bye-bye.